you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Who has the authority? That is the question for this morning. Who has the authority? Jesus or the Sanhedrin? This is the main conflict of today's text. Since the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus portrayed as the Son of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus received His divine anointing, that is His authority for ministry, at the baptism, where he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And it's here that the the Lord Jesus was commissioned for the mission to go out and to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God and to die to secure its coming. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he was led into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. In that encounter with Satan, Jesus was victorious, thereby showing himself to be authoritative over Satan. Soon thereafter, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And everywhere that Jesus talked, his teaching was so powerful that people wanted to know, who is this man who speaks and communicates with such authority? Jesus didn't only teach as his ministry began. He also began to cast out unclean spirits. Everywhere he went, unclean spirits approached him, fell on his knees, begging him for mercy. Whether it was one tiny little demon or a legion of demons, And when Jesus encountered these unclean spirits, he conquered them, showing himself to be authoritative over the demons. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus told the crowd that the Son of Man had authority to forgive sins. Several times over in the book of Mark, Jesus has healed people physically, showing that not only does he have authority over sin, but also over sickness. When the religious leaders confronted Jesus, he embarrassed them, and he showed himself to have authority over their oral tradition, their man-made laws. When a debate arose about the Sabbath, Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, showing himself to have authority over the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends the disciples out on their first mission, and he gives them some of his authority, and he says, go out and preach the the kingdom of God, and cast out unclean spirits. At one point, when the disciples were riding across the Sea of Galilee on a boat, a great tempest came, a storm. They were terrified for their lives. Jesus arose from his slumber, stood up, and by the power of his word, calmed the wind and calmed the waves, showing himself to be authoritative over nature. Two weeks ago, we saw the crowd recognizing Jesus' authority as he entered into Jerusalem, the city of the king. And all throughout the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, putting his authority on display. Jesus is authoritative over demons. Jesus is authoritative over sin. 
Jesus is authoritative over sickness. Jesus is authoritative over man's tradition and over the Sabbath and over the wind and the waves and anything and everything else that you could possibly imagine. Jesus is authoritative over all of it. And he's authoritative over us. In today's text, we see the Sanhedrin, the Jews of Jesus' day's supreme authority, the supreme authority in the land of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. They come along and they challenge Jesus' authority. It may seem like they're just questioning his authority, but to question the king's authority is to challenge his authority. Let's read about it together in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, here are the three main things that we're going to be looking at in today's text. We're going to be looking at wisdom, fear, and authority. Wisdom, fear, and authority. Let's start with wisdom. (coughs) Every American citizen is governed by a system of people who make laws, People who judge laws and people who enforce laws. Those are the three branches of government that we have. And this all comes together to form something called a democratic republic. That's what you live under. That's the authority we have. If you were a Jew in the days of Jesus, you would have lived under a different kind of authority. A different kind of governmental system. The body that governed you would have been known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 71 leaders. Odd number to stop at, but okay, could have stopped at 70. 71 leaders that adjudicated the religious and to some extent the political lives of the Jews under Roman occupation. The Sanhedrin was composed of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, and it functioned as a sort of buffer organization between Rome and occupied Israel. Rome told the Jews that they could govern themselves, and insofar as that was true, and it was not entirely true, but insofar as that was true, The way that the Jews governed themselves was through the Sanhedrin. The reason why we're talking about the Sanhedrin right now is because the Sanhedrin is the body that comes to Jesus to confront him in the temple in this morning's text. Not the whole Sanhedrin, of course, not all 71 of them, but what we read about is the representatives of the Sanhedrin. Look back at verse 27 again. Verse 27. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Well, these are probably definitely the representatives of the Sanhedrin. 
earlier in the book of Mark, in chapter 3, we saw that some people had come to question Jesus about what he was doing. Do you remember that? Jesus was performing signs and doing everything that he was doing, and the people in Jerusalem had begun to hear about it, and they wanted to investigate. What's going on with this prophet out in the backwater area of Galilee? So they sent some scribes to go ask Jesus, what's up with that? But what we see in today's text is very different than that. Jesus is not in the backwaters of Jerusalem anymore. He's in Jerusalem itself. He's in the city. He's in the lion's den. And he's not dealing with a few delegates that drew the short straw who had to go try to find this false prophet in the Galilean cities that Jesus was in. Now he's dealing with the corporate office. It's a big deal. Jesus, since the moment he stepped foot into Jerusalem, has been stirring up trouble. He went into the temple and cleansed it, started flipping tables over, kicking people out. You know, he did not tread lightly. His foot fell hard when he landed in Jerusalem. When Jesus was clearing the temple, he was confronting the religious leaders therein. And it's these same religious leaders that Jesus was confronting that are now here today to confront him and to ask him about his authority. Look at verse 28. It says, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? It's like the Sanhedrin is standing before Jesus and they're saying, uh, we're the most authoritative body in the land and we know that we didn't give you the authority to do these things, so if not us, then who? And here is where the wisdom of Jesus comes into play. This situation is explosive. And the way that Jesus responds to this question is of critical importance. The wrong answer will escalate this thing Right out of control. But here's the difficult spot that Jesus is in. There is no right answer. There is no right answer from Jesus. The only thing that he can say if he's giving a truthful answer is, my authority is from the Father in heaven. If Jesus says that, the religious leaders might snatch him up right then and there and take him off to go on trial. Or they might just stone him to death as they've tried to do before and as they've done to many prophets who came before Jesus. The scribes have already accused Jesus of getting his power from Satan. We saw that in chapter 3. So the answers that are available to Jesus to answer this question, where does your authority come from? He can say it comes from God and he might be killed. He can say it comes from Satan, which they think, but that's a lie. He can't say it comes from the Sanhedrin because, one, it's not true, but three, they're standing right, two, they're standing right there. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verses 29 through 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, you may be tempted to think that what Jesus is doing here is kind of playing politics. You know, answering a question with a question in order to avoid the question that was initially asked. But I think that what you see here is a little bit different than that. I think what Jesus is doing here is leading these men down a path. You know, Socrates was famous for doing that. 
Socrates, when he would teach students, they would ask him a question rather than just giving them a straightforward answer. He would ask a question in response, trying to lead them down a particular path. This is called the Socratic method. If you've ever been in a Bible study with me, I do this to you until you don't want to be in the Bible study anymore. But there's something powerful about learning a truth for yourself, feeling like you discovered it. But I want to also be clear that Jesus is leading these men down a path, but he's also laying a trap for them. Because Jesus knows that the heart of these religious leaders is hard. He knows that they're blind to the truth, that they won't receive the truth. And so he's leading them down a path that they don't want to go down, which is the path to truth. Jesus is saying, I'll ask you a question, and if you'll be honest with me, I'll give you an honest answer too. But if you don't answer me honestly, you'll get no response from me. So let's take a closer look at the question that Jesus asked the religious leaders. In verse 30, Jesus asked them, was John's baptism from heaven or from man? That is, was John's ministry authorized? Was John's baptism authorized? Did he have the authority to do what he was doing or not? Was he commissioned by God as a prophet or was he a charlatan? Was he, you know, in the company of the angels of heaven as he carried out his mission or was he a lone ranger? Was his authority legitimate or not? The reason why Jesus is asking them about John's ministry is because all of John's ministry was about Jesus. His whole ministry was pointing forward to Jesus. John said this, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Well, if John's ministry was legitimately from God, then Jesus' authority must be from heaven as well. Because John was pointing to Jesus. It was the whole point of his ministry. John was the servant, the forerunner, who would run to a city before the king arrived and would shout, the king is coming, the king is coming. Make way, prepare, the king is coming. That was the whole of John's ministry. So if the Sanhedrin wants to know who gave, who gave Jesus authority, it has to deal with the question of John's baptism. If, Jesus, if John was the forerunner to Jesus, to reject John's ministry is to reject Jesus. So Jesus asked this question, what do you think about John's baptism? What do you think about John's ministry? Was it from heaven or was, was he making things up as he went? So the religious leaders have two options, how they can respond here, two options. Option number one, they can say, yes, John's ministry was from heaven. But they can't really do that. In the text it says, well then, we're going to be blamed for not receiving his ministry. They don't believe that John's ministry was from heaven, and they rejected it. It will also indict them for their inability to receive Jesus and his mission. Option number two, they can say that John's baptism wasn't for God, wasn't from God. Now that, that kind of works for them except for one factor. If they say that John's baptism was from man and not from God, they will incur the wrath of the people because everyone believed that John's ministry was from heaven. Which leads us to our second point, fear. 
Let's read verses 31 and 32 again. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. The religious leaders are hard-hearted, and they are sinful, but they are not stupid. They recognize the difficult spot that Jesus has put them in. They recognize that if they're honest and they tell the truth about what they think about John, the people will turn on them. If you remember from the account of John's baptism ministry, you'll recall that it was very influential. Mark described it like this earlier in the Gospel. He said, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Not every single person, but all of Judea, all of Jerusalem. It was a movement. His ministry was influential. The people that the Pharisees and the scribes are afraid of are probably people who were out there being baptized by John and repenting of their sins in the river. The people bought into the ministry of John. He was a bold preacher and he said a lot of really hard things that made people hate him. But God gave him grace with the people. As a matter of fact, John was so popular, his ministry was so profound, that many years after his death, a person who wasn't even a Christian, a historian named Josephus, wrote about John the Baptist. Herod, the leader, his army was destroyed years later. And Josephus writes this about the opinion that the Jewish people had of it. Now, the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a punishment for what he did against John that was called the Baptist. You see, Herod killed John. He had him put to death. And so he was so beloved that the people thought that, well, his, his army was destroyed because God was mad at him for killing his prophet. That's how much the people loved John. So the religious leaders were afraid to say anything negative about John, not because they believed in him, but because they were afraid of the people. The religious leaders, it's important for us to understand, did everything that they did for the approval of man. When they fasted, they made themselves look rough so that everyone would know just how holy they were. When they prayed, they prayed long-winded prayers out publicly so that everyone would know just how godly they were. When they gave alms to the poor, they did it out on a street corner, blasting trumpets to let everyone know that they had given their money, that they were good and they were godly and they were virtuous. Everything that they did, they did for the approval of man. The religious leader's greatest fear in life was not displeasing God or disobeying his law. Their greatest fear in life was not being loved by people, not being in good favor with people. Their greatest fear was losing their reputation with the crowd. There's a term for that. It's called fear of man. The Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, and that the fear of man leads us into a snare. And that's certainly the case for the religious leaders. For these leaders of God's people, these are the leaders of God's people. These are the men that God has entrusted with the souls of His people. Their primary responsibility is to not make sure that everyone likes them and is happy with them all the time. 
their primary responsibility is to make sure that the Lord is pleased. As someone who feels the weight of that responsibility, I'm telling you it's hard. I, in some sense, sympathize with these religious leaders. Nevertheless, they cannot submit to fearing the people. They cannot let an ordinary fear fear become an inordinate fear. They can't let this fear become all-consuming for them. They can't shape their lives around it, and that's what they've done. Rather than fearing the people, they should be fearing Jesus, who's standing right in front of them. If these leaders want to lead God's people well, they shouldn't fear the opinion of man. They need to fear the wrath of God. And in the person of Jesus, God is standing right before their very eyes. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. We cannot let the fear of man rule our lives. It's so easy for us to let the fear of God diminish and to let people begin to fill the frames of our lives. All of a sudden, the things that we say and do begin to be changed, not because of what we think is pleasing to God, but because of what people might think of us or say about us or do to us. The fear of man is so dangerous to our souls that I think it's worth pausing here for a moment for us to reflect on what the Bible has to say about the fear of man. So here are five little sub-points, doing what preachers do, sneaking points within points. Sub-point number one on the fear of man. The fear of man shows that we have an unbiblical view of man. Listen to this verse from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? You see, when we fear man as much as we fear God, we're showing that we don't really believe what God says about man. Now, God says a lot of things about man. He says that he's the apex of his creation. He's glorious. He's amazing. He's incredible. And that motorcycle is just hitting laps, huh? But he also says that man is made of dust. Does it make much sense for one pile of dust to go around fearing another pile of dust? Of course not. Rather, we should fear the God who takes dust and breathes life into it. We should embrace all the good that God's word has to say about us as creation, as man. But we should not deify man in our minds. We should not make man God and turn him into an idol. Number two, the fear of man is incompatible with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.10, Paul is speaking about the gospel and he's saying some pretty harsh things to these Galatians. And he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul spent his whole life seeking the approval of man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If Christ hadn't have saved him, he would have been one of the members of the Sanhedrin. He was actively pursuing and killing Christians. But when Christ came and snatched him up by the nap of his neck and saved him, Paul counted all of that as rubbish. He turned away from everything he had ever known or loved for the sake of following Christ in the gospel. And that meant enduring scorn from nearly every person in his life. You know, this verse comes right before the account of Paul rebuking Peter. Paul certainly didn't want to fall out of favor with uh, 
the other apostles. And I'm sure that as he went to go rebuke Peter for Peter's hypocrisy, he probably felt a little bit afraid. But Paul feared God more than he feared man, even the apostles. Fearing God more than fearing man is a distinguishing mark for us as Christians. And brothers and sisters, we haven't had to prove that very much in the American church. But the time is coming and is here now where we will have to prove this more and more as the days roll by. So now, even right now, today would be a good time for you to decide who you fear more, man or God. Number three, the fear of man leads us into sin. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. A snare is something that would capture you, leading to your death. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know, earlier in your Bibles, you find the story of King Saul. He was Israel's first king, but he was not a good king. He was a disobedient king, and because of that, God himself removed Saul from the throne. Listen to Saul as he reflects on his sin and, and what's going on with his, with his sins. Listen to what he says. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Rather than fearing God, Saul feared the people, and that led him into sin. You don't have to be a king to succumb to this. I can't tell you how many pastors have shipwrecked their faith, their ministry, and their churches because they feared the opinions of the members of the congregation more than they feared God. And that led to them giving, letting the people take control of the pulpit and the ministry of God's word in the life of the church. This happens in our homes. Lazy fathers let other people in the family control it. Mothers let women in the community and their opinions about the way, the way they raise their children control their household. And we all know how easy it is for children to let the opinion of others sway their lives. One of the sins that the fear of man can lead us into is lying. And that's what happens in today's text. These religious leaders, they, they knew that they rejected John. They knew that they rejected his ministry. But rather than telling the truth and standing on their convictions, they respond by saying, so they answer Jesus, we do not know. Now, let me be clear with you guys. There's nothing in the world at all wrong with saying, I don't know. I say it all the time. I should probably say it more often. I say it from this pulpit. But there is something wrong with saying, I don't know, when it's a lie. It's a lie from political expediency. It's a lie to preserve your favor with men. It's a lie because you're afraid of man rather than God. In the book of Galatians, we talked about earlier, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, falling into the sin of fearing man rather than God. Listen to this passage from Galatians 2. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What you see in this text is two men. Two men who have fear. But Peter let the fear of man govern his decisions, and so he acted hypocritically. He acted out of line with the gospel. But Paul feared God more than he feared any man, and so he, he did what he had to do, and he confronted Peter face to face. And our sin can even affect other people when we fear man too much. This text says that Peter, being as influential as he was, because he was acting hypocritically, he led Barnabas astray. So now it's not only his sin, but he's leading other people astray with him because of his fear of man. Your sin does not exist in a vacuum, brothers and sisters. Verse 14 says that his conduct was not in step with the gospel. His fear of man led him to be a hypocrite. And his fear of man ultimately led him to live in a way that was not in line with the gospel. And that's the ultimate danger that we face, friends. When we fear man more than we fear God, it's not just that we're going to be a little bit hypocritical or that we're going to lead so Our souls are in danger. We begin to compromise the gospel. We begin to compromise our Lord Jesus Christ and pervert His grace. Number four, the fear of man leads to our destruction. Matthew 10, 28 reads, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The logic is simple. If we fear man, we can escape his wrath. But his wrath isn't that bad. But if we fear God, we can escape his wrath. And that is a wrath that must be escaped from. Number five. As disciples of Jesus, we must not fear man. We must trust in God. You know, Peter, he's, he's, you know, he's so on fire one day and he's just out cold the next. And that is a great encouragement to me. But in one account, Peter is compromising the gospel. In another account, he's standing boldly, willing to risk his life for the sake of preaching the gospel. And here in the book of Acts, we encounter Peter at his best. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we read, But Peter and the apostles answered, and he's standing before a council who's telling him to stop preaching the gospel. And Peter answered, We must obey God rather than men. And then verse 33 says that the apostles' response enraged the council and made them want to kill him. Notice that Peter felt a weird strong sense of fear of man when it come, came to not being liked by the Judaizers who came from James. But he was totally willing to die for the sake of the gospel. The fear of man affects us all differently. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus calls us to make a decision or even to live our lives in such a way that will leave us unpopular, criticized, poor, ignored, or even killed, what will become of our faith? Will we put it on a shelf? Will we ignore it? Or will we live by it? Like I said earlier with the example of Peter and his vacillation, the fear of man affects each of us differently. Some of us have no problem at all thinking about taking a bullet for the name of Christ. 
you know the old story that's supposed to make us all feel bad. You know, masked gunmen come in, kick in the door of the church, pull out a gun and put it to your head and say, will you deny Christ? What are you going to do? For some people, that's terrifying. They can't even fathom the thought. They pray that God will give them strength in that moment to stand firm for his name. For other people, the idea of getting a bullet to the head is just like, yeah, go ahead and do it, you know. For some of us, dying for the name of Jesus Christ isn't that difficult to comprehend. But the thought of someone at work not liking us is just too much. The thought of not being popular, it keeps us up at night. Some of us can't stand the thought of being poor. Kill me, make me unpopular, but let my bank account be full. The fear of man affects us all differently. My hope in this sermon isn't to condemn you for the way that you may fear man, but to encourage you and to challenge you to reconsider your fears, to calibrate your fears. In light of what the Bible says about man, in light of what the Bible says about God and what, who God is, in light of eternity, in light of the gospel, there is a way to put your fear of man to death. And that's to strengthen your fear of the Lord. Consider the Lord. Consider Him in all of His power and might and glory. Consider His great love for you and consider, consider His terrible wrath for those who commit treason against Him. Consider the pain that you feel when you act hypocritically. Consider the loss of rewards that you will sustain for fearing man more than fearing God. And consider the danger of one day arriving at the gates of heaven before the judgment seat of Christ and hearing him say, turn away from me, for I never knew you. You know, fearing the Lord is like fearing a lion. It makes sense. Fearing man is like fearing a kitten. I know a kitten can hurt me. Cat scratch fever is a real thing. But really, what can a kitten do to me? We live our lives in fear of kittens and the Lion of Judah stands roaring his hot breath on the back of our neck. Doesn't make any sense. The religious leaders in today's text, they have no idea that the Lion of Judah is staring them right in the face. But they will know one day. Point number three, authority. We're back to authority. The final verse of today's text, verse 33, shows us that Jesus has the authority. Look, at, look there with me, verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see the words, amen, amen, and then some other words that mean, I tell you, it's, Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Everywhere that Jesus goes as he's preaching, he's emphatically telling people the truth. Truly, truly, I tell you. But now as Jesus stands before these religious leaders who are trying to assert their authority over him, he says, neither will I tell you. Jesus' refusal to answer these religious leaders is a display of his authority. The master is not required to offer up an answer to his servants. The parent doesn't have to give an answer for the child when he grounds them. 
It doesn't work like that. The king of the universe is not required to give a response to those who have taken up arms against him. Now, I know that with this number of people here, and I know myself well enough to know that, some of us by nature are a little bit bent towards rebellion. Slightly precocious. You know, I want want to warn you. Jesus can respond this way to the religious leaders because he is the truly authoritative one. It bears mentioning that you are not. All authority possessed by human beings on this earth is derived authority. That is, it comes from something or someone else greater than themselves. So when the fallen creatures of this broken world approach Jesus and they question his authority, they they ask him for his credentials, it's laughable. The dust that he himself spoke into existence and breathed life into is now coming to him and asking him by what authority. It's laughable. But it's not laughable for you and I. Because we are the dust. We are under several different kinds of authority, and it is by God's good design. We are under the authority of the government, even imperfect governments, governments that kill Christians. When Paul wrote Romans chapter 13, he was writing about a government that was actively pursuing and killing Christians. We are under the authority of our employers. We are under the authority of our elders. We are under the authority of our parents. Even the elders of this church are very much under the authority of the members of this congregation. And all of us are under the authority of King Jesus. So if someone comes to you one day, maybe even an elder in this church, or even your brother or sister in Christ, and they ask you by what authority you're doing the things that you're doing, don't poke your chest out and think that this text is kind of giving you your inherent right to reject the questioner or his question. To rebel against the authority that God has placed in your life is no small matter. Whether you're rebelling against the government that God has placed over you, through an act of civil disobedience, or voting against a motion that your elders brought to you, or kids, one day, if you ever rebel against your parents, you should do so very lightly, recognizing that you're rejecting the authority that God has placed in your life. Now, to be clear, there may be times where you're called to do that. You may have to stand in an act of civil disobedience. You may have to stand against the authority in the life of this church. Children, if your parents ever lead you into sin, you, are not only, you not only probably should, you definitely should reject their authority and follow the authority of Christ, trusting that you will be vindicated by God on the last day. But you should not be quick to think that that's what God is calling you to do. You should be slow to assume that God is calling you to reject the authority that he has placed in your life. You should only make these decisions after much prayer, much counsel, and diverse counsel. Counsel doesn't mean I'm going to go to people who are going to tell me what I think I already know. You should only make the decision to reject authority in your life after much prayer, much counsel, and much consideration of Scripture. If you rebel against the authority structures that God has placed in your life for your good, don't see the verses from today's text as kind of your proof text for your sinful rebellion. 
unless your name is Jesus, and it's not, you, like me, will probably spend more time in your life submitting to authority than rejecting it or rebelling against it. It's the way that God has made us. In today's text, Jesus isn't, he's not rebelling against authority. Jesus is showing those that think that they have authority over him, he's showing them that they have none. He says, I don't have to answer you because you don't have authority over me. We'll see this again later in the book of Mark. Every single one of us will submit to authority. Even in today's text, these religious leaders are submitting to some authority outside of themselves, or rather within themselves. These religious leaders want power. They want to remain in control. And because of that, they have a great fear of man. And that fear of man is the greatest source of authority in their lives. Rather than fearing God and his law, they fear the opinion of man. Now, all of this leads us to a question that affects you profoundly. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a man? Is he just a prophet, like our Muslim friends would say? Is he just a really good teacher, like a non-aggressive atheist or an agnostic might say? Is he a political revolutionary, like Che Guevara would say? Or is he the sovereign God of the universe? Is he authoritative over your life? Your answer to this question is eternally important. This is not the kind of question that you can plead the fifth to. You can't claim ignorance on the matter of Jesus Christ and his authority. It must be reckoned with. To claim ignorance about the identity and authority of Jesus like these religious leaders do here is to reject Jesus and to rebel against his authority. To say, I don't know about Jesus is to reject Jesus. The only way to receive Jesus is to submit to Jesus. To claim that Jesus is the Lord of your life but to continue to live in sin is to reject his authority. To claim that Jesus is God but then live for the approval of man is to reject his authority. To claim that Jesus is the word but then to reject his truth is to reject his authority. To obey all that Jesus commands because we think he will let us into heaven is to reject his authority because he didn't just command us to be obedient, he commanded us to love him. I want to end this with uh, two more implications of the authority of Jesus that we see in today's text. I got these after talking with Russell Berger this week. First one is for believers, those who profess to be Christians. We cannot try Jesus. We cannot try Jesus. He's not something that we can just add to our lives like a new hobby. You know, maybe I'll try gardening. Maybe I'll try to crochet. Maybe I'll try motorbiking. That's not what it's called, motocross. Maybe I'll try this Jesus thing, you know. Maybe I'll go to church, and I'll give it a, I'll see how it, you know, how it improves my life. I'll give it three to six months. He's not a new pair of jeans that you can try out to see how it makes you look. Jesus' authority is all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. We cannot allow him to be authority, authoritative only over part of our lives. 
He can't be the Lord of our hands, but not the Lord of our hearts and our mouths. He can't be the Lord of our finances, but not be the Lord of our sex lives. He can't be the Lord Monday through Friday, but then relegated to just being another man on Saturday and Sunday when it's time to party. If Jesus is Lord, we must submit to him as Lord in every way and in every circumstance without exception. And when we fail to do that, if we're Christians, we will repent of our failure to submit to him and we will turn from it and we will turn to him. Now, if you confess this morning that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, do you think that the people who know you best would think that about you? I'm not even talking about them. I mean, my hope is that one day when I say the people that know you best, the people you'll think about will be the people in this church. I'm not sure we're there yet. It's so easy for us to come in on a Wednesday night, have a meal, maybe not even come to the meal, slip in for Bible study, hang out for five or ten minutes, flip back out, come here on a Sunday morning, not Sunday school, kind of slip in five minutes after service has begun, slip back out right as the last song begins, or maybe hang out for five or ten minutes, and kind of give people your, your, the Instagram version of yourself, right? The one that you edited, that you, you got the perfect angle on, you know, you're like, well, you can't see my double chin from here. Not that I have any personal experience with that. You put just the perfect filter on it, you know. So easy for us to do that here with each other. But what about the people who know you best? Your children. Do your children really believe that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Your husband, your wife. The people that you maybe work very closely with on your jobs. Your best friends, the ones that you feel like you can have the most honest conversations with, the ones that you feel like you can be the most vulnerable with, do they think that you submit to Jesus as the all-authoritative Lord and King of your life? I'm not asking you if they think that you're perfect. We know that you're not perfect. I'm asking if, even though they see your imperfections, do they recognize you as someone who has submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? The second question is, or the second point is for the unbeliever. We tend to think that if we don't, even though we're not Christians, I don't hate God, you know? I guess you guys can go do that God stuff, it's cool, you know? But friends, you should know that we Christians, we believe that the Bible teaches that there is no neutrality. You know, we don't think that there's a safe space in between God and Satan. And as you're kind of trying to figure out your spiritual lives, you can exist there in that safe space. There is no neutrality. Everyone is submitting to some authority. Everyone is bowing the knee to someone. We all have authority that we serve. Whether we realize it or not. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, my question is, what authority do you serve? Is it your lust for power? Is it your desire for the approval of man? Is it your bank account? Are you in full submission to the desires of your flesh? What is it? It is something. I don't know what it is, but it is something. 
everyone is bowing the knee to something or someone, and if you're not actively bowing the knee to King Jesus, you are bowing the knee to someone else. And that is treason, my friends. But there's hope. Today is the, salva- is the day of salvation. Today, the Lord Jesus Christ has thrown wide open the doors of mercy. And he said that if you lay down your arms, you can come back and join his ranks. You can stop bowing the knee to his enemy, the enemy's army. You can throw down their flag, throw down your arms, and cross back over into his lines and submit to him. I'd encourage you to consider that even now. We all assume that we'll have time tomorrow, but that tomorrow is not promised to us. So submit to King Jesus with your whole lives. And brothers and sisters in this church, may we lead as an example to a lost and dying world of what it looks like to submit to the authority of Jesus rather than usurp it. Let's pray. Father, because of our sin, we are prone to rebellion. And we have rebelled against you even this week. But your grace has been sufficient. And so we pray that you would give us more grace as we go back out into a lost and a dying world. We pray that we would be the aroma of your son, Jesus Christ. And that we would glorify him with our lives and with our hearts.